beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. Usually, as I'm doing this peppy little greeting over the delightful little jingle that Nathan created for this podcast, I'm imagining all of you out and about and on your way. I picture you in carpool lines and evening traffic. I imagine you at the gym working out or sitting in a cubicle at lunchtime. And I'm having to now wrap my mind around the idea that you're all probably home right about now because of hurricane coronavirus. And then when I think about all of you stay-at-home mamas who are kind of always at home, those of you who listen while you're washing sippy cups and sterilizing toys and folding endless piles of laundry, being quarantined has probably got nothing on you. You do this every day. You're a pro at being efficient, even while you're homebound. Wherever you are and whatever it is that you're doing in these moments, I pray that you have a heightened sense of awareness of what God is wanting to do in and through you in this moment. It's amazing what this exposes in us, isn't it? We can actually let the stirrings of fear and anxiety cause us to pause and talk to Jesus. I love how our pastor Darren led us this past Sunday. I know that I had said in the last episode that we were going to try to carefully gather as a church, but of course, things have changed moment by moment in the last week or so, and I don't know of many churches the size of ours that are meeting publicly. So we got to commune in our homes, as most of you probably did, this first Sunday of this worldwide pandemic, and I love that Darren led us to remember that we are sheep who know the shepherd's voice. In John 10, three through five, Jesus said, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. I think I've talked about this before, but you can see it to be true to this day that Eastern shepherds lead from the front of the flock. They don't push from behind and yell and bully the sheep into form. They lead quietly and confidently from the front because the sheep know their shepherd's voice. So when fear arises, we can silence that fear by getting still before the Lord and listening for His quiet and confident voice in our lives. In John 10, Jesus also says that He Himself is the gate for the sheep. Darren showed us a picture of a sheep pen and how the shepherds would literally lay across the opening of the sheep pen, literally becoming the gate for the sheep. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The Sunday before last, before this virus became an actual pandemic and we started realizing that we are all going to have to make some significant changes to our lives, Our community group from church went downtown to help the tornado victims in one particular part of Nashville. And on the way down there, the women in our group were texting and just coming up with a plan as best we could of what we needed to bring as we were headed in to help. My job was to tell Nathan to load up our generator and also pick up a bunch of styrofoam coolers and ice to cool down drinks that we would be bringing. But also we imagined that families who still didn't have power would find a bag of ice and a cooler very helpful. So we loaded it all in the back of our truck as well as our three kids And we headed that way. Well, I have to tell you that I was not prepared for what I saw. Honestly, it looked like a set of a movie. 
or really a third world country. We were headed to the home of a church member whose home literally sits like a city on a hill in one of the neighborhoods that was devastated the most. They sustained significant damage to their roof, and of course, their power was out like most of downtown, but it was jaw-dropping how eerily close in proximity that they were to homes that are now literally uninhabitable, like, I mean, right across the street. But to get to them was something we were not prepared for that day. The city wasn't kidding when they were discouraging people from coming into the area to help without having a specific contact or a place you're going. We didn't realize that we were going to get stopped at about every other intersection by Metro Police because so many of the streets at that point were still impassable or just the electric company needed as much of the road that they could to get the power lines back on. But as we were driving through the neighborhoods, I could hear people start yelling out, ice! (laughs) Finally, after the third person who yelled, Nathan pulled over, and I just jumped out and headed toward an elderly woman who had cried out, who was with her daughter and several other women. And we handed them a huge bag of ice and a cooler, and you would have thought I was handing them passes to a day spa. It was kind of a hot day for early March, and as the sun kept beating down, we went on our way, and we were trying to weave through these police barricades, and the ice started melting. Well, our group struggled for more than an hour, probably, to literally just find each other and to arrive at the same address at the same time. So there were issues with parking. You couldn't just pull over on the side of the road and park anywhere you wanted. There were issues with the barricades, as I said, and all the while... The ice just kept melting. (laughs) Well, there were several moments where we would get on phone calls with each other and try to find one another, and I found myself actually kind of losing hope that our team was ever going to actually connect and do what we had come down there to do. And on one of those phone calls, I basically started whining to my friend Velvet, who was the main point person with our contact from the church. And I was like, Velvet, I have 50 bucks worth of ice melting in the truck, and people are yelling for it. She very calmly and sweetly said to me, I know, I'm not sure what to do either. And she kept throwing out possible scenarios. And right about then, we saw each other on the road and waved each other down. When we finally got to where we were going, we were able to set up and just start offering a hot meal to the surrounding neighbors. We helped people pick through the donations for specific things that they were hunting for. But mostly, looking back, we were just there to listen. People just needed to talk. Velvet and I took a walk down a street with a pamphlet of hot dogs at one point, a street we later realized was one that was mostly full of uninhabitable homes. Each had a red sign taped to the front of it saying, do not enter. But we encountered an elderly gentleman on that road who immediately upon us walking up to him started telling us stories about the war, what he encountered in Vietnam, and how this felt similar to him, that it was bringing back memories. Velvet and I just found ourselves standing, listening, and just looking at him in the eye and being a friendly face. I think he appreciated the hot dog, but I think more than anything, he needed the friendly faces in that moment. Well, the ice that I brought ended up in the deep freeze of the family's home from our church that we were headed to, and hopefully she'll get to use it in block parties to come this summer. In fact, that's what she's been doing during this tornado crisis. Her house has been the block party house complete with a bouncy house that she borrowed from the church, a sound system playing worship music out over the neighborhood, donations to rummage through, hot food from whoever can bring it. As I watched her, this woman who had a tarp over her roof, no electricity, her front door literally wide open for anyone to come in, 
The entire front of her home was in complete disarray from people coming in, dropping donations on her front porch and in her living room. Yet she wasn't running door-to-door frantic, trying to figure out what to do with melting ice. She was just holding babies and talking to neighbors. She was listening, speaking to them with a calm and confident voice of truth. As we made our way home that night, I started realizing what those moments of zigzagging our way through those neighborhoods exposed in me. If I had to pinpoint it, I felt helpless in trying to help. I ended up texting our group on the way home and was like, y'all, please forgive me for real for whining about the melting ice. (laughs) But the next morning, as I sat with Jesus, I brought him that sense of helplessness because it was really bothering me. And I asked him, Lord, where is this coming from? I think part of it revealed places in my heart where I have allowed a scarcity mentality to creep in. This is the state of being or the fear of being in short supply. With this mentality, our thoughts and fears and actions stem from a heart of lack and even greed. As I read that definition of scarcity mentality, I sat with it. I didn't feel greedy about the ice. In fact, I had wished that I would have spent 10 times that amount on diapers because that actually seemed to be the greatest need that day. People were rummaging through and kept trying to find diapers and we weren't coming up with much. But I think the greediness came in because I was looking to my own offering to try and meet people where they were, which of course was represented by the melting ice in that moment. I was looking to my own limited and fleeting resources, which made me feel helpless when all the while I should have slowed down to stay in tune with the Spirit of God so that I could pull from His endless resources, His endless supply for these people in need. This is the refining work of God that is so beautiful for us to pay attention to in times like these. It feels a little bit like sandpaper on our hearts sometimes, but this is the stuff of sanctification and refinement that makes us in the end more like Jesus. I mean, yes, the ice was a welcomed relief, especially for that one elderly woman. I can't get her face out of my mind. It was the exchange that she and I had together, though, that will last. It was that smile, that hug, her knowing that I saw her, I heard her. That's what Jesus had me down there to do. I've thought more and more about all those times the cops stopped us that day, who were so gracious every single time, by the way. Jesus had me realize that the melting ice and the generator in the back of our truck were really just our ticket to get inside the barricades. It wasn't really about the ice or the generator or the hot dogs or the big pans of tzatziki's Mediterranean food that one of our friends brought in, which ended up being the biggest relief. By the way, I was very impressed with all our Nashvilleian neighbors who passed up cupcakes to get to that big, fresh Greek salad. Yes, it was great to have food to share, but really... We were there to just be the hands and feet of Jesus. It was all about the smiling, the listening, just being the calming people of God, bringing hope in that moment that brighter days are yet to come. I'm sure you would all agree that this moment in history is probably the most bizarre we've seen in our lifetime. I messaged my patrons of this podcast last night and said, is this real life? (laughs) There have been several moments, I told Nathan, that feels like a weird dream that we all can't seem to wake up from. I know there is real sickness out there and there has even been death. So all the more reason that we should take this moment, as weird as it is, very seriously. 
Our family's doing our part in social distancing, even though I hate that that's even a phrase right now. We're not getting out unless it's vital that we get out. This isn't because we're afraid of the virus. This is to respect our community and not being a part of spreading it. But after I read a blog post last week from a doctor in Italy who said something to the effect of, watching America go about their daily lives in this crisis is like watching a horror movie where the main character goes down into the dark, musty basement in search for the bump that they just heard in the night. That kind of got my attention. And then he talked about doctors having to choose between people in their 40s of who they should intubate, who they should help, who they don't have the resources to help. I don't say that to scare anyone. I know you've heard all those things. Assuming it's true, I think it should sober us. I think it should humble us. We are not going to overcome this pandemic because we're Americans. I mean, I'm proud to be an American along with all of you. I stand and sing all the patriotic songs from my wraparound porch on the 4th of July. But what if it's really not all about us just overcoming this pandemic? Should we pray that God will intervene and stop the spread of it? Yes, every day. But what if there's more? What if this is really all about us pausing? I mean, let's face it, God has paused life on planet Earth. What if it's a moment for us to stop what we're building, because we have to stop what we're building, and to place Jesus once more above anything we're building, above every person, place, or thing in our lives? What if this is about Him taking His rightful place again, the highest place in our lives? Because the truth is, He has already overcome this world. That's John 16, So placing Him once again at the highest place is our best defense. This is us living from the already of our story as the people of God. Listen, we're self-employed. We, we get it. Most of our friends are either self-employed or small business owners. Most of us have no idea what we're going to encounter as we try to pick up the pieces of all of this. But I have to believe that God's heart for us is that we will never be the same, that we somehow won't just pick up the pieces and pick up where we left off, but that we will reorient our entire lives around Jesus again. And I mean beyond our events and even gathering as the church, I pray that this is when we truly become the church, a people who would place Jesus above everything, above all that we're building, all that we're trying to sustain, above every paycheck, every bill that's due. I have to believe that we will see Him be faithful and come through, even in ways that we never have seen Him come through for us before. Beloved, we are not defenseless in these days. In fact, the weapons we have are the weapons we need in this moment. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So thoughts of helplessness, hopelessness, famine, financial ruin, sickness, and fear, we have the weapons we need to tear down these strongholds. You might have seen that I did a little mini prayer guide on Instagram stories, which I did make a highlight if you want to reference it later. But if you're like me, sometimes as I sit down, I just sort of need a structure for prayer. Sometimes I just need a prompt or a place to start. I shared that on my prayer guide that I was encouraged by my little friend Zoe, who I met at Blue Skies several years ago, 
Zoe has battled cancer fiercely off and on in her short little lifetime, and she is a beautiful little warrior. Well, her mom, Courtney, is a friend of mine, and she posted last week that they were discussing what was going on in the world, and Zoe piped up and said, I think I know why God is allowing this to happen. If anyone is scared or worried, the only thing that we can do is pray. He wants everyone to pray and love Him. It reminded me of Psalm 8, too. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I thought I'd quickly share this little prayer guide. I'm not sharing this because I feel like I'm any sort of expert on prayer because I'm not, but more actually because I need to grow in my prayer life. You've probably seen these prayer prompts or this structure before, but I find it really helpful. Start with praise and adoration. This is about adoring God above any person, place, or thing and magnifying Him above every worry fear, or circumstance. So when you sit down, start with praise and adoration. Move into confession and consecration. The heart of this prayer is surrender. It's a returning to the Lord. It's a laying down of anything that we have raised above Him. And it's re-consecrating ourselves to Him. We've talked a lot about consecration on this podcast. It's that re-consecration of ourselves to Him to be set apart and wholly His. And we can do that every day. This is a time to confess sin. We should hate sin, especially our own. And it's also a time to confess boldly that God is sovereign and sufficient and we belong to Him. This is us submitting to God's authority, rule, and dominion over us and over our household. Then come before the Lord with supplication, with the requests and specific petitions and needs that we have. These are the needs of our own household, the needs of our own heart, the needs of others around us that are on our heart. There are going to be countless needs in these days. Sometimes this requires us to be still and listen to the Holy Spirit, as in Romans 8, 26, which says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He might bring faces of friends and loved ones to your mind when you sit and listen. Maybe it's to pray for the small business owners in your world or friends you have that are in healthcare. He might bring to your attention where he's just wanting to work in your own heart, kind of like my scarcity mentality moment. Listening is a beautiful part of prayer. And then there's thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Lord because he is good. His answering our prayers doesn't determine his goodness. It doesn't make him good. It is his very nature. Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And remember to ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Why do we do this? This is not us waving some sort of magic wand to get what we want, but rather our acknowledgement of the finished work of Christ and the power that is in the name of Jesus. This is us recognizing Christ as our covering over our lives and that it is Christ that does the asking on our behalf when we pray in His name. Andrew Murray wrote this about this beautiful truth. Prayer has its rise and its deepest source, in the very being of God. In the bosom of the deity, nothing is ever done without prayer, the asking of the Son and the giving of the Father. I love to think that praying in the name of Jesus, we surrender to this ever-asking, ever-interceding prayer of Christ to the Father on our behalf. 
One of my patrons said it well, as some of us were messaging the other night. This moment is about trusting the Lord and being wise at the same time. It's always that both and, isn't it? I can't help but think of Psalm 119, how it stands as this beautiful song in which we can trust in the Lord, but also put one foot in front of the other and walk in the way of the Lord, walk in His wisdom. It's putting our trust into action. The section of verses we'll be looking at today are verses 9 through 16 of Psalm 119. Before I read this, I want to bring to our remembrance that when you hear words like commandments, statutes, testimonies, and precepts, these are word words. Remember, their first direction is grace. These are covenant words. Christopher Ashe, whose commentary I've told you I've been loving for this psalm, points out that as we go, the singer or the psalmist actually periodically substitutes these word words with the word promise. Promise simply means something said. But Christopher says the context often indicates that something is said with the direction of grace. God's promise speaks of his steadfast love and of his salvation. So this is a rescue word. It speaks first not of what we must do for him, but what he has pledged to do for us. It speaks of promise. And then he says, therefore, it speaks of Christ. For in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So we can sing this song along with the psalmist as we now stand in the covenant that always promised Christ would come. Christopher Ash goes on to say that the covenant is only possible because of the Christ to come. Only in Christ do the covenant sacrifices for sin have substance. Only in Christ can the Spirit of God be poured out into cleansed human hearts without destroying them. Whenever in the Old Testament a man or woman believed the promises of God, they believed in the Christ who was to come. When Abraham believed the promise, he believed, in principle, the gospel that was preached to him. This is Galatians 3.8 that says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So when Abraham believed and those who have gone before us, even the singer of the song, they believed in Christ who would fulfill the promises. Therefore, the singer is justified by faith in Christ, for there's never been any other way to walk with God. No one can sing the song with integrity until and unless he or she has been justified by faith in Christ. This is still Christopher Ashe. He says, it follows that to try to sing the song as if it were a legalistic song, rejoicing in works righteousness, written by a priggish creep. That's such a British word, by the way. He says, it's like setting the lyrics of a lullaby to the music of a punk rock band. It is quite simply the wrong music. For the right music is the music of grace and the melodies of Christ. When we sing it, we must tie the law to the promises. We must never divorce the statutes from the Savior, and we must never cut off the commandments from Christ. Amen. (laughs) With that said, this is Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 
I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This section of this acrostic, that is Psalm 119, corresponds with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it is the letter Beit. My daughter Eliana is painting our Hebrew letters for us, and this particular script that we chose for her to paint is actually not a modern script of the Hebrew alphabet. Instead, we are using what is called the Kitav Ashari. This is a form of traditional calligraphy that was used from what I can tell as early as 1000 BC and all the way up to the time of Christ. This actually was the script that would have been used in the writing of the Torah. So Jesus would have read and most likely even written this particular script. The letter bait in pictograph, as we talked about last episode, was drawn as a house or a dwelling. If you'll remember, the pictograph for the letter Aleph or A is a head of a bull or an ox, which means strength or leader. So these two letters, the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, side by side, Aleph on the right and Bet on the left, can be read, strength or leader of the house. In the Old Testament, the house would have referred to the temple or the tabernacle. But now when we hear the word temple or tabernacle, it's a much different picture, isn't it? Side note, I don't mean for this to be disrespectful at all, but I can hardly say the word tabernacle and not think of a moment when I was in college and I was leading at a worship night with some friends. And the worship leader who was a friend of mine was on the mic. And it was this really tender moment as we were worshiping and he started praying on the mic and bless his heart. He said, God, we praise you. We bring an offering into your tabernacle. <laughs> and then he tried to correct himself and he said it again, tabernacle. <laughs> My friend Colin and I, who were on the worship team and were probably only 18 years old, if that tells you anything, we were literally losing it. Like our faces were beat red as we were trying to hold our laughter in, in that moment. This is just me, but I think that God just allows us things to happen sometimes so that we just don't take ourselves too seriously. I've heard much worse said from the stage, that is for sure. Anyway, I hope I didn't ruin that word for you just now especially the next time you maybe have to teach the Bible and talk about the tabernacle. <laughs> but John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is the word skeno, which means to live in or to tabernacle. According to help word studies, it means dwelling in intimate communion with the resurrected Christ, even as He who Himself lived in unbroken communion with the Father during the days of His flesh. Unbroken communion. How beautiful is that? But what I was going to say before I told you about the tongue twister, that is the word tabernacle, where is the tabernacle or the temple of God now? We are the temple, aren't we? By His Spirit, Jesus tabernacles in us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Now think about those Hebrew letters side by side again, the Aleph and then the Beit, strength or leader of the house. It's powerful to think about, isn't it? Jesus, who is God, is the strength of the house. He is in you and He is your strength. He's the strength of your house, your temple, your body, yourself. He is the leader and the strength of you, your house. I think I might actually frame those two Hebrew letters side by side somewhere in our home. It's just such a beautiful reminder. He's the strength of the house. Like verses 1 through 8 in Psalm 119, this next section of verses seem to have a structure. They sort of divide four and four. The first four verses talk about the importance of the word being hidden in our hearts. And the back four verses talk about the response of our mouths or what we end up declaring with the word of the Lord in our hearts. I like Christopher's main takeaway on these verses. The word in the heart keeps us walking in the way. I like that phrase. It's easy to remember, isn't it? The word in the heart keeps us walking in the way. In what way? The way of the Lord. The singer starts this section with a question, and we've talked about how some of life's greatest answers are actually questions. Well, he asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? I tend to agree with the scholars who believe that the writer of this psalm was not preaching at us here. He was simply praying. He is the young man who is asking an important question out loud. How can I keep my way pure, God? He answers himself by saying, by guarding it according to your word. He says in verse 10, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. We have such a tendency to be led astray instantly. There's so much to distract us, even as we are homebound. Because of this, we must seek with our whole heart. This actually reminds me of a couple of things. My friend Ruth Simons and her husband Troy wrote a beautiful book called Foundations. They just released it not long ago, 12 Biblical Truths to Shape a Family, something amazing that you should have right now. But one of the chapters is called Hate Sin, Especially Your Own. And day five of that chapter says, avoid wandering intentionally. It says that there are places we should not go, people we should not hang out with, and activities we shouldn't participate in. And yeah, right now, we can't go anywhere or hang out with anyone, but we can just as easily be led astray, which reminds me then of something I saw Jenny Allen post a couple of days ago. It was alluding to the fact that many of us are maybe going to binge watch something in this season while we're home and trying to figure out what to do with our lives. I'm not saying it's wrong to binge watch. Nathan and I have enjoyed some shows in our lifetime. But what Jenny was saying was just a strong warning to choose wisely the things that we're going to sit and get lost in in these days, to know what's in them and guard our hearts. Even this is a way that we can walk in the way of the Lord and seek Him with our whole heart. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, this is that the word in the heart keeps us walking in the way. One of the things that Nathan always challenges our kids with is just making sure that they're mindful of what they're consuming and making sure with what they're consuming that they are consuming truth. Even if we don't have a Bible verse memorized for every single thing that we encounter, truth in equals walking in the way. Truth in equals believing what that truth stands for and means for us. What we're consuming is important, and it's so important that we're consuming the Word of God. We're storing it up in our heart. 
I've told this story before, but I remember my mom reading me the story a long time ago that she read in a magazine, and it was about a young woman who was on her way to work one morning. She was sitting at a stoplight, and she suddenly found herself in a life-threatening situation as an intruder opened her car door on the passenger side, gets in, holds her at gunpoint, tells her that she needs to go wherever he says that she should go. Well, in a split second, this young woman's mind went directly to the Rolodex of Scripture that she has hidden in her heart her whole life. And in this case, she was trying to recall Psalm 91.4 that her mother had taught her, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. Well, pinions, as you know, means feathers. So, in the moment, fear and adrenaline shooting through her body, she couldn't remember the verse and say it word for word out loud. Actually, all she could remember was the word feathers. (laughs) So as this guy has this gun in her face, this young woman starts frantically fanning herself in the face and saying the word feathers, feathers. (laughs) Well, the next thing she knows, the intruder opens the car door and jumps out and runs away. (laughs) No one's sure exactly what happened. Maybe this guy was just freaked out by a woman fanning herself in the face and saying feathers. Or who knows, maybe he saw an angel army encamped around her car, or maybe he saw the feathers of the Almighty flapping around her car. The point is, even without being able to say it word for word in the moment, it was still her shield and her guard that day. The word in the heart keeps us walking in the way. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. This is a word word that's worth defining here. This word means a decree, and it emphasizes the binding force or permanence of what is spoken. Again, God's decrees were never meant to oppress us. They were meant to free us, to become who He has always dreamed that we would be as His people. I love this beautiful thought from Bruce Wilkerson. The law is not intended for the person whose obedience springs out of a desire to please God. He is not concerned about what is legal or illegal what is permitted or forbidden. He has only one criterion. What does my Lord desire? You can lay out all the law before him, all the rules, regulations, and prohibitions. And he would say, you don't have to tell me not to do those things. I wouldn't do anything to hurt my father. I love him. I've already forsaken the world and all its lust to go after him whom my heart desires. Show me what he wants, not just what he forbids. I want His heart's desire to become my actions. I want to know His mind and obey it. Sure, I love His law, but that's for the lawless, for those who haven't come into a knowledge of intimacy with Christ. I have another law at work in my heart. It's the law of love, one that says, Lord, what can I do to please you today? Verse 13, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Can't think of anything better to take before the Lord and what would be pleasing to Him today with our lips to declare all the rules of His mouth to say, God, I believe that this is true. God, I believe that this is for even my freedom today. This is even for me growing into who you've always wanted me to be. I hope you're starting to hear these word words to that tune of grace. Isn't it interesting that before you could hear the Psalms melody of grace, you probably couldn't imagine going around declaring God's rules with your mouth. But I love how I'm starting to hear the rescue in His rules, the protection, the guard, the comfort, and the love. In verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight 
as much as in all riches. This word testimonies is a word that bears witness to the faithfulness of the Lord. You've heard me say probably more than a hundred times on this podcast that Jesus is the treasure. Well, I love how this verse declares that. Jesus is ultimately the faithfulness of God personified. So in this way of God's faithfulness, who is Jesus, we delight as much as in all riches. There's not a better moment in history to let this be true of us. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. A few weeks ago, when we could still gather as a church, it's hard to believe that that is even coming out of my mouth right now, but we learned about what it looks like to meditate on the Word of God. The passage that we were in was Joshua 1. And the context here is God commissioning Joshua to lead the people of God over the Jordan after the death of Moses. And he says to Joshua, starting in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses. In verse 5, he says, Just as it was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is a pretty big promise here, that in meditating on the law, which then was the Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, but can also just mean overall the law or the instruction of the Lord. God says, meditate on it, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. I learned that this word meditate is actually the word hagah. And very interestingly, it means to moan or to growl. Our teacher at church that day explained that this moaning and growling is a word in Hebrew that describes a lion growling over its prey. And this isn't a threatening growl. Actually, this word meditate or hagah is associated with the sound that a lion makes when they have finally gotten to sink their teeth into the meat of their prey, and they make a specific sound that is associated with this. It's a moaning or a growling sound that is mixed with a purr. It's a deep satisfaction. You can actually look it up online. I looked at several instances where you can just listen in on a pack of cubs or a pack of lions. They're getting to finally just sink their teeth into the meat. And it, they make this really specific sound. It's almost eerie. It's a growl with a purr. It's really, really beautiful to think of that associated with us getting to sink our teeth into the Word of God. 
On a lighter note, one of my favorite movie scenes is from the 90s movie, What About Bob?, where the main character, Bob Wiley, who is played by the hilarious Bill Murray, he's enjoying a delicious home-cooked meal made by the wife of his psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin, who is played by Richard Dreyfus. But Bob has lots of issues in his life and anxieties, and he's basically stalks his psychiatrist who is on vacation for several weeks in the summer at his lake house. He's annoying Dr. Marvin to no end while he's also winning the hearts of this doctor's wife and his two kids. There's this whole dinner scene that is hilarious. As they're sitting at the lake house, the crickets are chirping. They're having this meal that Dr. Marvin's wife has laid out, fried chicken, corn on the cob, mashed potatoes. And Bob is enjoying this meal out loud. In fact, he is moaning and groaning nonstop. And it's one of those scenes in a movie that part of actually what makes it funny is that it goes on and on a little longer than you'd expect. (laughs) But as you come to understand the character of the movie, you know that this is probably the only home-cooked meal that this guy has had in over a decade. So there's a lot of deeper understanding of his delight in this delicious, satisfying meal, and it's making him feel loved and secure and delighted in as Mrs. Marvin and the kids just keep passing him more fried chicken and more salad and more corn on the cob. And you kind of start to be happy for him, even as he's just sitting there moaning and groaning over this yummy meal. You'll never hear the word meditate the same, will you? To meditate on the Word of God, it is to devour it, to consume it, to enjoy it, and to delight in it. And that's verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Like an unforgettable meal, we delight in the instruction and the word of the Lord. One of my favorite meals in town is at a restaurant called Brick Tops, and I love their meatloaf and mashed potatoes. I know, of all things. It sounds really old-fashioned, but it is the most comforting and delicious meal, and I love looking forward to the next time I'll have it. I will say it's been a while, and now it's going to be even a while longer. (laughs) But I look forward to it because of the way it comforts and it satisfies. As we were reminded earlier, in Christ, All God's promises find their yes. All God's promises find their ultimate satisfaction in Christ. May we cling to Him in these days, because He is also the Word of God, as in John 1, 1. May we embrace Him, delight in Him, and find all our satisfaction in Him. May we look to Him to be our help and our shield, but most important, our treasure. If you'd like to dive into more of the Glorious in the Mundane podcast, you are invited to become a patron of the podcast, which is a small community available to you on patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Christy Knuckles. One thing you might enjoy right away is instant access to a series that I did the summer before last called Summer in the Psalms. You'll also get extended content with each podcast where we dive just a little bit deeper into some heart work and prayer. You'll also be the first to know about the book coming out and any upcoming events when events are someday a thing again, as well as you get the podcast before the rest of the world. In the meantime, all of you stay well, trust God, and be wise. I'll talk to you soon.